Thank you very much, Mimo. Um, good morning, everybody. Um, make sure I, I, I see what I'm going to be talking about. I will maybe here. I'm, I'm here on. Here you are. All right. So, um, bariatric surgery. Uh, these are again my peccadillos. They are the same as yesterday. I, I had a very peaceful evening, so I don't have any more sins. And, um, yeah, obesity is, is a growing problem. And it's not just this country. Um, we see lots of morbidly obese patients in Italy so much for the Mediterranean diet. And Italy also has one of the highest uh, prevalence rates of childhood obesity in Europe, uh, which we are not very proud of. But my um, involvement with bariatric surgery goes back to the early 1980s when I um, met this surgeon at the University of Pisa who had this theory that deriving uh, the bile flux, I'm sorry, um, downstream along the uh, GI tract had metabolic effects. He was more than a theory, it was an obsession with him. And he had developed a rat model whereby he was using this little cannula, which he made with his own hands, this plastic cannula, to divert the bile flux down into the uh, uh, terminal part of the ileum in rats. So he'd done the operation. He'd done also sham operation, these rats. He had control groups. But he, he did not know how to work with rats. So he asked me, the help. I didn't have the faintest idea what he was talking about. I had no interest whatsoever, but he had the glucose analyzer machine, which I badly needed <laughs> to do my clamp studies, which was where my heart was pounding. And so we made a deal that I would help him with the rat studies, but he would lend me the glucose analyzer. And that's exactly what we did. And so we, for example, we looked at, this is, for example, um, the body weight uh, change over time in control animals, sham-operated rats, and internal biliary-diverted rats. And as you can see, in the operated rats, after the initial three to four weeks where they, they were uh, losing a lipid of weight, there was a catch-up then, and the weight wasn't... So this was not a weight-losing surgery. So these are the uh, metabolic tests that we carried out. Uh, we looked at the uh, uh, fasting plasma glucose and uh, fasting plasma insulin concentrations. Um, for example, uh, over the course of six weeks, 
for surgery. And already in the fasting state, there were lower plasma glucose levels and similar plasma insulin concentrations. Then um, we gave um, an oral glucose load by Gavage. And in doing that, I got quite a few bites. Um, and as you can see, before surgery, after surgery, there was a clear improvement. Now, these were normal glycemic rats. These were not diabetic rats. But already in, in this model, there was an improvement in the plasma glucose concentrations, both fasting and post-glucose, uh, without any measurable change in plasma insulin levels. And I was not convinced. So we gave a double glucose load, because as you know, normal rats are very tolerant to glucose. So um, I had to give twice as much glucose by gavage, and so I got twice as many bites. But even on the repeat glucose load, the plasma glucose concentrations were lower in the presence of unchanged plasma insulin values. And then I, I thought, well, maybe this is just an effect of somehow the surgery. And so to test the, um, the uh, beta cell function, we also gave glucose intravenously, which is done, as you all know, through the tail vein of, of the rat with an insulin syringe. And even on the intravenous glucose tolerance test, uh, plasma glucose levels were improved in the presence of uh, no change in plasma insulin concentrations. And so we, we eventually published this. Uh, and um, years later, I've gone back to this publication to, to see what I had written in it. And I had been very careful in saying, OK, lower plasma glucose concentrations in the presence of unchanged plasma insulin levels must stand for improved insulin sensitivity, period. And the editor of the American Journal of Physiology accepted the paper very enthusiastically. And this is one of the very few times that this has happened uh, without questioning what is the mechanism, what is the presumed mechanism. And after this, I had enough money to buy my own glucose analyzer. And I forgot about it all for almost um, 15 years. Now, what I'm going to describe to you is our experience with three uh, kinds of bariatric operations. The most common one, the Rouen-Y gastric bypass. The biliopancreatic diversion, which is an adaptation, really, of the internal biliary diversion that was done by that surgeon, who, by the way, passed away last year. And then the iliac transposition with sleeve gastrectomy, which is uh, performed by a group of surgeons in Brazil which I have the, uh, I've had the opportunity to, co to collaborate with. And um, I would like to tell you up front that we do these studies in a completely opportunistic fashion. So I collaborate with any surgeon that does anything. As long as they, as long as they give us the, the metabolic uh, data and they follow some protocol so that we can make something out of what they do. But I take absolutely no responsibility for what they do, why they do it, and what indications they follow. So let that be clear. I'm not uh, going to discuss the indications of bariatric surgery in the way that uh, Francesco Rubino is, uh, is doing um, virtually all the time. 
uh, I'm, I'm only going to, I'm only going to, uh, to discuss what results we, we, we've got. So gastric bypass, this is the operation, of course, which is essentially uh, predominantly a restrictive operation. You are left with a pouch uh, of a capacity of 30 to 50 mLs, which is then uh, anastomosed to this uh, um, uh, segment of the uh, proximal uh, jejunum, thereby bypassing the duodenum and the initial part of the jejunum, such that the biliopancreatic juices, which come here, meet the nutrients, whatever nutrients make it through this pouch uh, after um, bypassing this, this uh, part of the intestine. Now, this is a study that we just published where we took uh, eight lean control subjects 14 obese control subjects, and then 25 surgical patients, 12 of whom were non-diabetic and 13 had type 2 diabetes. These are the uh, ages, these are the BMIs, and the choice of the obese controls was made such that their body weight would match the post-surgical body weight of the surgical patients. And you can see the final weight in the surgical patients, uh, non-diabetic and diabetic, was uh, quite a bit lower than the pre-surgery patients. They lost, on average, about 40 to 50 uh, kilograms, as is typical. Now, these are the results. We, uh, we did three studies in each of these patients, one at baseline before surgery, one about two weeks after the operation, and then one year later. And as you can see, the body mass index in both the diabetic and the non-diabetic subjects decreased only slightly two weeks after surgery, and we reason in the paper that this is essentially loss of body water in the post-surgical time, whereas after that, there was this expected change in body mass index, which was similar in the non-diabetic and the diabetic subjects. Fasting glucose, and this is again a finding that has been reproduced um, hundreds of times, fell sharply both in the uh, non-diabetic, but especially in the diabetic subjects, early after surgery, and then continued to drift down over the period of one year, and so did the plasma insulin concentrations. So this finding has been interpreted to indicate that early after surgery, there are effects of surgery, which are independent of body weight, because at this point in time, very little fat mass has been lost. And so the purpose of the study was to investigate whether or not this is truly independent of body weight, whether this is metabolic surgery or just bariatric surgery. So what we did was to use tracers to measure endogenous glucose production, peripheral glucose disposal, and lipolysis, we used dideuterated glucose to measure glucose fluxes and labeled glycerol as, as a proxy for uh, lipolysis. And as you can see, endogenous glucose production came down uh, relatively uh, uh, markedly uh, soon after surgery and then was more or less unchanged. 
whereas there was no significant change in peripheral glucose disposal early after surgery, and then there was a significant improvement a year after surgery in both the diabetic and the non-diabetic, and lipolysis followed this course. Now, the way we look at the data is by plotting fasting endogenous glucose production measured by tracer, and the M value, which is during the insulin clamp, total glucose disposal by all tissues in the body, as a function of the BMI. So the uh, lines, the full lines up here and here, uh, depict the relationship between glucose production or insulin-mediated glucose utilization to BMI in the basal state. So this is the basal set of measurements. And the dotted line are the 95% confidence intervals of these uh, relationships. And then we simply plot on these relationships the values in the non-diabetic patients before surgery, early after surgery, late after surgery, the diabetic patients before, early, and late after surgery. This is the control group uh, of obese individuals who were matched to the post-surgical patients by BMI. And this, these are the lean controls. And likewise here, these are the, <coughs> the uh, non-diabetic patients before, early after surgery and late. Same thing for the diabetic patients before, uh, early and late after surgery. The weight matched uh, obese individuals and the lean controls. And the point that we make is that we don't see any evidence of a deviation from the expected relationship between obesity and either endogenous glucose production or peripheral insulin-mediated glucose utilization. So what we argue is that if there is a special metabolic effect of this surgery early after surgery, we cannot detect it. I'm not saying it does not exist because Francesco may be outside waiting for me to punch me out, but we can't find evidence for that. Now, the fact that endogenous glucose production and fasting plasma glucose levels drop significantly early after surgery is entirely expected on the basis of the caloric restriction. You can reproduce the exact same data using um, caloric um, or deprivation or, or restriction and find exactly the same results. So that's not to say that this is a special effect of surgery or a metabolic effect of surgery. We also did calorimetry in uh, these uh, subjects, measuring resting energy expenditure and carbohydrate and lipid oxidation rates, as you can calculate them from uh, calorie, indirect calorimetry measurements. And as you can see, in the obese groups here, before surgery, diabetic, non-diabetic, and the matched obese, resting energy expenditure was higher, which is expected because of the higher lean body mass that they have as compared to the lean controls. And carbohydrate oxidation is depressed, and lipid oxidation is increased. This is what you expect of obesity in general. And then this is in the fasting state, and 
Likewise, during the clamp, this is the stimulation in oxidative glucose disposal, uh, which is uh, Krebs cycle uh, oxidation of glucose, non-oxidative glucose disposal, which is basically glycogen synthesis, insulin-mediated glycogen synthesis, and this is lipid oxidation, you see that the lean controls respond quite well to insulin by increasing both oxidative and non-oxidative glucose disposal and suppressing lipid oxidation. And this is the substrate utilization switch that you expect with insulin. This was blunted in all obese groups before surgery, the control group, and before surgery here, here, and here. But what is interesting and expected is that early after surgery, there is a rise in lipid oxidation and concomitantly a sharp decline in carbohydrate oxidation, which somewhat persists one year later. And this is simply because you have removed the inhibition of lipolysis because insulin levels have dropped. So now you are melting away the fat Free fatty acids are fluxing to peripheral tissues and are being taken up in an ungated fashion. They are being utilized oxidatively because given a chance, muscle will take up free fatty acids in preference to glucose because it needs insulin for glucose but not for free fatty acids. And therefore, they will be oxidizing them. And this is the way we get rid of the fat. We also measured in the diabetic uh, group beta cell function, and to make sure that we were not looking at some effect of surgery, we used intravenous glucose uh, boluses. As you can see, this is the plasma glucose concentrations at baseline, early after surgery, and a year later, over the first 10 minutes following a bolus injection of glucose, the standard dose. These are the corresponding plasma C-peptide concentrations. These are the insulin secretion rates, which we calculated by deconvolution of C-peptides. And this is the acute insulin response, which is the empirical index that's used to estimate beta cell function following intravenous glucose. And what we found was that fasting insulin secretion rate was already down early after surgery and dropped even further a year later, which corresponds, parallels the drop in plasma insulin concentrations. Of course, if you don't eat because you are calorically restricted, both your plasma glucose and insulin levels drop, and therefore insulin secretion rates are down. But when we looked at the ability of the beta cell to respond to the acute intravenous glucose challenge, we could not see much of an effect early after surgery Whereas a year later, in the diabetics, the acute insulin response to glucose was improved. So we concluded from this uh, set of data uh, that uh, surgery, Ruan-Y gastric bypass, in both non-diabetic and diabetic subjects, is bariatric. And the effects that you see on insulin are due to caloric restriction, which predominates early after surgery, or body weight changes, which predominates late after surgery. And we do not see, again, uh, much evidence uh, suggesting that there is something 
special to the bypass that is responsible for a weight-independent change in either beta cell function or insulin sensitivity. Now, beta cell function, of course, improves because you remove some glucose toxicity because the diabetes obviously gets better, and also because you have a uh, robust response of GLP-1, which has been known to be increased after surgery, and that clearly helps the beta cell to handle uh, a, an acute stimulus. But above and beyond that, we do not see a metabolic effect of surgery. We recently uh, uh, completed another uh, series of studies, which is IMPRESS, where again using the uh, uh, Ruan-Y gastric bypass operation, again we looked at uh, morbidly obese patients with either normal glucose tolerance or type 2 diabetes before surgery, 45 days after surgery, and one year later, and these are the typical results. And the purpose of this was to, because we had a relatively large group of patients with type 2 diabetes, was to see whether we could predict remission of diabetes, whether there was anything in the phenotype of the patients with type 2 diabetes that would predict the outcome one year later in terms of diabetes remission. What we found is this. So, you're difficult, Jesse. <laughs> um, so, again, what we found when we plot insulin sensitivity against the BMI in non-diabetic and diabetic subjects at baseline, a month and a half after surgery, and a year later, is a very good uh, correlation between the BMI and insulin sensitivity, with diabetics being uh, below the non-diabetics systematically, which you also expect because of the presence of diabetes. And when we looked at beta cell function, now this was using uh, a mixed meal as the uh, stimulus. And so we could calculate, again, from the C-peptide response using deconvolution to um, the plot insulin secretion rates against plasma glucose concentrations, thereby estimating beta cell glucose sensitivity. Again, when we plot that against the two plasma glucose levels on the um, mixed meal, uh, this is the pattern for the diabetic, and this is the pattern for the non-diabetic group. And as you can see, baseline, early after surgery, late after surgery, there is a major improvement into our plasma glucose levels, which parallels the improvement in beta cell glucose sensitivity. But even a year later, on average, beta cell glucose sensitivity in the diabetics was worse than the baseline beta cell glucose sensitivity of the non-diabetic, suggesting that there is an inherent problem with the beta cell response in the diabetic, which is improved but not fully restored in the diabetic. So we then looked at remission. And because we have two time cuts, the month and a half and a year later, we um, categorized our patients with type 2 diabetes into early remitters, those that remit a month and a half. And remission here was 
was defined rather rigorously as an hemoglobin A1c below 6 and a fasting plasma glucose level below 126 milligrams per deciliter and a two-hour plasma glucose concentration less than 200 milligrams per, per deciliter. Whereas the typical uh, definition of remission or resolution in other studies, for example, in the um, meta-analysis of Buckwald and collaborators, is just uh, getting off anti-diabetic drugs. Okay, so this was somewhat more uh, strict uh, definition of remission. And then we looked at those that remitted at one year and then those that did not remit. And as you can see, looking at beta cell glucose sensitivity, this was better at baseline in the early remitters than in the late remitters. And in turn, this was better than in the non-remitters whereas there was no difference in insulin sensitivity. So we could predict that at baseline, beta cell function, and not insulin sensitivity in this case, or not so much insulin sensitivity, is what predicts the outcome of the uh, operation. And as would be expected, a month and a half after surgery, beta cell glucose sensitivity and insulin sensitivity were both improved in the early remitters as well as the late remitters, whereas there was a significant change in the non-remitters, but uh, these, these subjects remained uh, uh, significantly different from the uh, remitters. So um, the conclusions from this, uh, these two sets of data, is that in morbidly obese patients, Rouen-Y gastric bypass improves liver, because we looked at endogenous glucose production, adipose tissue, because we looked at lipolysis, and muscle insulin sensitivity, the M value on the clamp, and the pattern of substrate utilization using calorimetry. These changes are sufficiently well explained by caloric restriction, predominantly early after surgery, and weight loss in the longer term. And for us, the longer term in this case is one year. Diabetes remission is prevalent at one year post-surgery, so you do improve markedly diabetes, but baseline beta cell function is the best predictor that we could find of subsequent remission or improvement. Now, biliopancreatic diversion, this is a uh, more um, complicated surgery where, first of all, there is gastrectomy, then the, uh, the terminal ileum, these two and a half meters of uh, intestine, are anastomosed to the um, stomach remnant, and the bile and pancreatic flux is anastomosed down here approximately 50 centimeters before the ileocecal uh, valve, okay? So the uh, nutrients bypass all this part of the intestine, and they go a short loop around, and they only meet the biliopancreatic secretions 50 centimeters before uh, becoming um, uh, colon. So that 
translates into malabsorption, which is predominantly lipid malabsorption. Now, an important difference between gastric bypass and biliopancreatic diversion is that here the gastrectomy is partial. The, the, the surgeons, they leave a substantial amount of stomach in place, whereas with the gastric bypass, the restriction is much uh, higher. And as a consequence, the symptoms of the patients are different. Nausea and vomiting predominating in the gastric bypass patients, malabsorption uh, being uh, almost the readout of the operation in the biliopancreatic division. But in our experience uh, with the surgeons, again, um, the choice between one or the other kind of surgery also depends a little bit on the uh, patient, the individual patient, his or her dietary habits. For example, we, we do some psychological workup of patients before waitlisting them for surgery. And if the patient tells you, which is not unusual, that they cannot possibly um, do without eating, that they cannot change their eating habits because they have tried this many times before and failed, then in principle, they would be better candidates for biliopancreatic diversion than gastric bypass because they can eat freely here, obviously at the cost of um, diarrhea, malabsorption, but they prefer this, once you explain this to the patients, they prefer this over the nausea and vomiting that persists with the gastric bypass. But anyway, this is a group of uh, patients with morbid obesity and normal glucose tolerance who underwent uh, biliopancreatic diversion. As you can see, their BMI was, the average BMI was quite high, dropped about 20 units, which is approximately 60 uh, or 70 kilos. This is the normal range for insulin sensitivity on the clamp again and insulin output. And as expected, two years later, these uh, subjects gain insulin sensitivity such that their average value now is fully within the normal range at the same time as insulin production drops. So you have improved insulin sensitivity in the face of reduced insulin secretion. And you have this unusual phenotype, which is almost a biological chimera, of somebody whose BMI is still 33. So obese, but insulin sensitive. This is now the, uh, the usual plot on uh, an OGTT of insulin secretion against the concomitant plasma glucose concentrations. This is the, con the shaded area is the controls. This is the baseline in the morbidly obese non-diabetic subjects. And this is, this is two years later. And as you can see, there is uh, an upward shift of the dose response, which is beta cell glucose sensitivity, in the obese before surgery compared to controls, such that at each plasma glucose concentration, they secrete a lot more insulin than do lean subjects. This comes down towards the normal range following the operation, but the slope is unchanged. So we have not done anything to the ability of the beta cell to acutely respond to glucose. We've simply changed the set point of the beta cell by turning down 
uh, uh, insulin release. This is now a summary of uh, a number of studies that we did using the surgery in um, morbidly obese patients with normal glucose tolerance with IGT or type 2 diabetes using the CLAMP technique to measure insulin sensitivity. And as you can see, in the obese, before surgery, there was insulin resistance, whether they were NGT, IGT, or diabetic. And of course, this was worse than the diabetic, and this is simply reproducing what everybody else finds in the literature. But following the surgery, insulin sensitivity was improved across the board, regardless of glucose tolerance, such that this group of patients with type 2 diabetes, again, they became insulin sensitive, normally insulin sensitive after this kind of surgery. And you know that there is virtually nothing else that can restore insulin sensitivity in patients with diabetes. And even in the uh, non-diabetic subjects, there was this improvement in insulin sensitivity. So then, because we had uh, the surgeons had done the surgery at different times after uh, the studies, at different times after surgery, we could plot these cross-sectional data. These are not longitudinal data, cross-sectional, so they should be taken with some caution. But the, uh, <clears throat> the red dotted line is the uh, body weight before surgery and then at these median times after surgery. And the blue line is insulin sensitivity on this axis before surgery and then at the same median times uh, after surgery. And as you can see, even as early as two weeks after surgery, when body weight was little changed, and most of the change is water, is dehydration because of the surgery, Insulin sensitivity is fully within the normal range. And in fact, later on, these individuals who still have um, um, relatively high body weight, they become uh, better than normal. So again, this is the biological chimera that we find with this kind of surgery, that in, still in the obese state, these individuals, for example, here, they become either normally insulin sensitive or insulin supersensitive. And this occurs very early after surgery, unlike the case with the gastric bypass. And in those that have diabetes, we did this 16-hour um, monitoring of plasma glucose, insulin, and C-peptide concentrations. Again, the shaded areas, uh, the values and uh, uh, standard errors uh, of the mean in control subjects. The blue symbols are the patients with type 2 diabetes before surgery and the reds are after surgery. And as you can see, after surgery in this group of diabetic patients, these, these were not mildly diabetic, but they, they were on treatment and they had had diabetes um, in, on average for eight years. You can see that the daily plasma glucose concentration profile was completely normalized in the face of lower plasma insulin and C-peptide concentrations. So an increased secretion of insulin was not responsible for this phenomenon. It was essentially due, it was due to improved beta cell function, but also 
to the improvement in insulin sensitivity that I showed you. And it's just worth commenting that there is nothing in our armamentarium for the treatment of diabetes in terms of drugs or combination of lifestyle intervention and drugs that will give you this normalization of the plasma glucose profile over a period of uh, normal living. And so when we plotted, uh, as we usually do, the insulin secretion rate against the plasma glucose concentrations on the OGTT, this is the uh, rightward and downward shift in the dose-response relationship, indicating a depressed beta cell glucose sensitivity or beta cell incompetence. The blue area is the controls, and the, the uh, blue line, the light blue line, shows the results after surgery, so normalization of beta cell function. So from these studies, which we are continuing to do just to make sure that we are not um, um, making any mistakes, um, in morbidly obese patients, biliopancreatic diversion normalizes insulin sensitivity. The effect on insulin sensitivity is seen before significant weight loss, unlike gastric bypass, and in diabetic patients, the biliopancreatic diversion normalizes daily plasma glucose profiles. We also had the opportunity to compare the biliopancreatic diversion operation with the gastric bypass. Now, this was not a trial. It's very difficult to do randomized trials with bariatric surgery because of the preferences of the patients and the surgeon. The surgeon usually likes one operation. <clears throat> but we did this post-doc comparison looking at, uh, again, body mass index, the BMI, as a function of time after surgery. This is the uh, control group. These are all our uh, morbidly obese patients before surgery. And then this is at different times after surgery those that had the gastric bypass, and we have two measurements, and those that had the biliopancreatic diversion, three measurements. And as you can see, in terms of the time course of weight loss, there are no major differences between the two interventions. What we did see, <coughs> when we plotted insulin-mediated glucose disposal as a function of time after surgery, was that the gastric bypass patients go up like this, which is what I've shown to you already, whereas the biliopancreatic uh, diversion patients, they shoot up early after surgery and they continue increasing fully within the normal range. So we uh, could again look at the expected reciprocal association between insulin sensitivity and body mass index this is the baseline describing what you expect on the basis of your data uh, for the relation uh, of insulin sensitivity to body mass index. And, and then the controls are up here, low BMI, good insulin sensitivity. The gastric bypass patients are here before surgery. They gain insulin sensitivity. And then again, but they slide along the expected um, line, whereas the uh, biliopancreatic diversion patients, they start from here, they deviate from the expected relationship already 
when their body mass index is, you see, between 35 and 40, this is already comparable to the uh, lean control subject. So again, this is a phenotype of an obese person with normal insulin sensitivity, and they continue to climb up uh, at later times. So we tend to believe that this fork here is the difference between the two interventions. This being essentially uh, due, the, at, at least metabolically, to either uh, caloric deprivation, which predominates early after surgery, or weight change, which predominates later. Whereas with the biliopancreatic diversion, there is some metabolic that is not fully explained by the weight loss. So bypassing the duodenum and the initial jejunum does not involve metabolic mechanisms other than calorie restriction and weight loss, whereas the contact of biliopancreatic secretions with the mucosa of the terminal ileum, which is what the surgery does, improves insulin sensitivity in a partially weight-independent manner. So this is one kind of surgery that we could call metabolic, based on our data. This is bariatric. Now, I would like to challenge you um, um, on, on some data that we, uh, um, we found recently and, um, and get your opinion, your candid opinion. I should tell you that I've exposed these data to Rudy Leibel yesterday, so I feel much better today because I know what he thinks of them. So, but up until yesterday, I was very nervous to show you these data. This is, again, the risk study that I described to you uh, yesterday. This is a cohort of non-diabetic, normotensive Europeans recruited at 19 different centers in 13 countries in Europe who got, at baseline, um, uh, a standard euglycemic insulin clamp an OGTT, and a number of other measurements with a very well-characterized phenotype, including physical activity, which was measured by an accelerometer, which is this little um, thing that you strap on and you carry for 24 hours for at least six, six days uh, in a week, so that then whenever you make a movement that uh, passes the threshold for the tick in the accelerometer, so whenever the the motion is uh, sufficient to activate the accelerometer, uh, the, the thing takes away, and then it, it, um, you can download the results, and the number of ticks are uh, essentially uh, convertible, can be converted into your uh, degree of physical activity quantitatively. Now, this um, cohort was followed up observationally. This was just an observational study. And these people came back uh, three years later. And we looked at body weight. And this is the change in BMI in women and men uh, three years later. And as you can see, both in women and in men, there is somewhat of a rightward shift in the distribution of the changes in BMI. Of course, over this period of time, some people will gain weight, some people will lose weight, some will be stable. But on mean, the entire cohort moved uh, towards a higher BMI, which 
we think is the typical phenomenon uh, that you can observe in free-leading populations. So we uh, introduced some definition of those that had stable body weight or lost body weight or gained body weight based uh, exclusively on the distribution of the changes in BMI. So we took the bottom change in BMI and we called that body weight losers. The top 20% was the gainers and everybody in between was stable. And these are in men and women the, um, you know, the anthropometric characteristics of um, these subjects. Now, the reason why we carried out this analysis is because the literature is repleted with papers describing an impact of insulin sensitivity on subsequent weight changes. And we reviewed the literature, and the literature is actually almost equally divided between those that find that insulin resistance predicts body weight gain and those that find the opposite, that it is good insulin sensitivity that predicts body weight gain. For example, in the Pima Indians, which still are a standard for metabolic studies, they found that those people that were more insulin sensitive at baseline gained more weight at follow-up. So that is the predominant uh, opinion about this. And we wanted to revisit this because you can physiologically, you can argue both ways. You can argue that if you are uh, very insulin sensitive, then you respond to insulin very well. Therefore, all the anabolic effects of insulin are revved up and therefore you are prone to gain weight. And conversely, you can also use the opposite reasoning. And you can say that if you are insulin resistant, your diet-induced thermogenesis is depressed and therefore you are prone to gaining weight. And in the absence of a clear biological uh, indication, because this is such a large cohort, we decided to look at this. And you see here the population, the entire cohort, divided at the median value of uh, insulin sensitivity on the clamp as insulin resistant in red and insulin sensitive in uh, white as a function of their BMI at baseline. And the statistical analysis of these data suggests that neither insulin sensitivity nor insulin resistance have any predictive power for subsequent weight changes. So what we did see, however, and this is simply plotting BMI at baseline and follow-up, is that both the gainers and the losers started with a significantly higher BMI as compared to those that we defined as stable. Now, you may see that the difference in BMI is relatively small because this is a healthy, essentially, European population of volunteers with a mean age of 44 years, but this was highly statistically significant. So they made us quite curious because it looked as if the baseline phenotype of those that were prone to gaining as well as losing weight was similar. So we, um, we looked at this uh, with a multivariate uh, predictive model separately in women and men 
looking at uh, the prediction of weight loss over a period of three years, we did not find any effect of age. We found an effect of waist circumference. And if we replace waist circumference with BMI, body weight, waist to hip ratio, whatever index or proxy for obesity or adiposity you choose, we find invariably that the higher the BMI or waist circumference, the higher the risk of losing weight with no influence or very little influence of insulin sensitivity. And for weight gainers, exactly the same thing. No impact of age. Um, a higher waist circumference or body mass index or body weight in both men and women was predicting weight gain three years later uh, independently of the degree of insulin sensitivity. So first of all, we had to uh, compare these results with what's in the literature. For example, in the Pima Indians, initially it was reported that good insulin sensitivity predicted weight gain. And there was a lot of physiological reasoning in the paper. But then a later publication from the same group with a slightly different composition of the authorship on a slightly larger group of Pima Indians reported the opposite. So that made us very comfortable that we could say whatever we wanted. <laughs> But quite curiously, now the Pima Indian cohort that was studied was much smaller. It, it was in the hundreds, whereas this is in the thousands. Also, as you know, the Pima Indians are the world champions of obesity, as well as diabetes, hypertension, alcohol abuse, smoking, and abuse in general. And they live on reservations. So we were not terribly surprised that the comparison between the uh, pre- and the post-Pima Indian publication business and our Europeans did not match. So we felt okay. But quite curiously, as I was walking through the literature looking for evidence that the baseline body weight is a predictor of what happens subsequently to body weight, believe it or not, such simple evidence as just body weight or BMI is not to be found. And so we thought that all the literature that is describing influences of something, lifestyle, insulin sensitivity, insulin secretion, there is a lot of literature on insulin secretion, on subsequent body weight changes, omits adjusting for the baseline body weight, which is, in our cohort, the only determinant of subsequent changes in body weight. So these values are adjusted for the standard deviation of the predictors. And what this says is that if your waist girth is high, you have a 30% increased probability of gaining weight by our definition over a period of three years spontaneously. Now, what these people did to gain weight or to lose weight or to stay stable, we have no idea because we simply called them back three years. This is a purely observational study. So the assumption is that those that lost weight were eating less and those that gained weight were eating more, but we have no proof of that.
This is baseline. The baseline predicts the change. Yes. 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 It's puzzling. Sorry. It's puzzling. You are perfectly right. No, no, it's, it's predictive in both, or is non-predictive, right, yes. Yeah, you, you can phrase it differently, but, but the, the, the... Right, and that's, that's, that's exactly what... Yeah, not, the, I mean, yes, it's the, the, the change, but not the direction, but the way we, 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 and this bears on what I'm going to tell you in a moment, the, the way we, we sort of um, uh, interpret these data is that this group of people, and by the way, there are approximately 200 individuals in each of these two groups, and the remaining 700 are here. So these are relatively numerous uh, groups. So we think that this is a group at risk of doing something with their weight. Either going on to gain further weight or to lose it. So these are essentially weight unstable individuals. And the subsequent analysis that we did on these data was targeted at understanding precisely that. So let me go on and see if I can confuse you further. I've now, um, taken this from Rudy Leibel. So this will be extremely familiar to all of you. It's actually hanging on the wall in your bedroom. Okay? This is the uh, paradigm of asymmetric physiology of body weight regulation. And I truly owe this to Rudy because I've been reading his papers ever since I was wearing short pants. <laughs> so Rudy carried out uh, this extremely uh, difficult experiment about 15 years ago, which was, sorry, with Robin. Oh, oh, yeah, 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 right, of course. Well, he got his name on the paper, but you didn't. <laughs> um, was wearing short pants. Short pants as well. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, they did this incredibly complex experiment where they took um, volunteers, they admitted them to the hospital, they subjected them to either um, an increased caloric intake or a decreased caloric intake, then they waited until they were weight stabilized, and then they reversed the, the pattern. And what they came up with is this concept, which I find uh, really fascinating. And that is that the relationship between leptin, in this case, this is leptin concentrations somewhere, but you could change this to any other uh, molecule, any other hormone or substrate that controls body weight, either the intake side or the uh, uh, expenditure side, so either satiety or appetite. And leptin is just a champion of these, and it sort of stands for any 
um, other hormone that controls the anabolic response. Now, if this were symmetrical, okay, the relationship go, would go like this, such that when you increase leptin, you signal satiety to the central nervous system, and therefore you turn off the anabolic response. When you decrease leptin, you turn on the anabolic response. And this is the physiology that we've learned, basically, about leptin, but also about insulin. You know that insulin <coughs> does get through the blood-brain barrier when this is interrupted, gets onto the brain, binds to neurons in the midbrain where all these centers that control body weight are located, and like leptin, should inhibit appetite and enhance satiety, thereby controlling body weight. Now, if this were symmetrical, the relationship would, would go like this. But what uh, Rudy argued is that this physiology is actually asymmetric, such that after a certain leptin concentration, it takes an enormous change in leptin concentration to further block anabolic responses, wherever on the low side, there is a, uh, an almost exponent, this is of course hypothetical, but there is an almost exponential increase in this response, such that for small changes, dec decrements in leptin concentrations, you get a major increase of stimulation in the anabolic response. Please, Rudy, stop me anytime I'm not representing your uh, thought. And so he argues that there is a threshold below which the anabolic response is stimulated inordinately and out of proportion to the change in the plasma uh, leptin concentration, or rather the response of the central neurons in the hypothalamic areas that matter to leptin concentrations. So the signal comes from the adipose tissue. The more adipose tissue, the higher the leptin. The leptin signals to the brain to stop eating. Okay? Now, this asymmetry can explain at least two very important physiological phenomena. First of all, that if you use leptin as a therapeutic, it doesn't work. And this has been tested by trial. When leptin was uh, obtained by recombinant uh, technology, the hope was that leptin injections would make people lose weight. It did not happen. And it did not happen because you are moving along this flat side of the asymmetric relationship. So having more leptin and more leptin, this is actually probably a log axis, uh, does not make you any thinner than at the beginning. But conversely, and probably more importantly, if you are here, if you're losing weight, you're losing fat mass, your leptin is decreasing, if you cross this threshold, some signal explosively goes to the brain to signal to the brain that you're losing energy and you need to increase your energy intake. And this is what goes under the name of defense of attained weight. So. I was uh, <clears throat> um, really fascinated by this. And so the follow-up on, on, on this is that with obesity, this threshold, which normally would be here, is shifted to the right. 
such that if you are normal, the explosive anabolic response is triggered at this concentration of plasma leptin or leptin function, you know, whatever leptin does uh, when it uh, gets on the receptors. Whereas if you are obese, the threshold is shifted to the right so that the explosive anabolic response occurs at a higher plasma leptin concentration. So if you come from here, you're losing weight, but then you cross the threshold before this point at this point, you immediately trigger the anabolic response and your uh, uh, attained weight is preserved. So we sought evidence for this phenomenon in our data, very simply. So in those two groups, um, these are the weight gainers from the risk study. So these are the people that gain weight spontaneously over a period of three years. This is the energy expenditure, which we calculated using the equations that have been developed by Kevin Hall at the NIH as a function of fat-free mass. And this is what you expect, that this is a daily energy expenditure, which includes an estimate of exercise and diet-induced energy expenditure, according to those equations, as a function of the fat-free mass, which is the total mass of the metabolic active, metabolically active tissues. And, sorry? This. Okay. This, in the risk study, was measured by electrical bioimpedance, which is a very uh, unsatisfactory method. But we also... Um, estimated fat-free mass using Hall's equations, and then compared in this population the estimate given by the equations by electrical bioimpedance. And in this large number of subjects, they correlate quite decently. So this is expected. And this is just the difference between men and women, such that in men, for the same fat-free mass, you have a lower uh, daily energy expenditure than in women, which is just one of the disadvantages that men have compared to women. Maybe not the most important one. Then what we did was simply to plot the initial body weight against the final body weight in the total population of the weight losers, the 200 and odds individuals who lost weight by the definition we gave, which was entirely statistical, and in the weight gainers. And again, this is something that I've looked carefully through the literature. And such plots, simple as they may seem, are not to be found. So the prediction from the asymmetric paradigm that Rudy proposes is that initial BMI will be very tightly correlated with final BMI, because those that start high will cross the threshold at a higher level and will maintain, will defend their body weight. Those that start lower will cross the threshold at a lower leptin or whatever concentration. And therefore, they will defend a lower level of body weight. So the prediction from that would be that either weight losers or weight gainers should show this correlation. And these are, mind you, independent of one another. This was measured three years previously, and this was three years later. So we thought that this was, first of all, 
a very tight correlation, surprisingly tight, and that this supported the paradigm of the asymmetric physiology of weight regulation. We divided these two groups into the lean, up to 25 of BMI, the overweight, up to 30, and the obese. And as you can see, they align along these regression lines in both weight gainers and weight losers likewise. So no deviation from the expected result uh, based on the initial body weight. But then we had lots of uh, data from patients that we'd studied with Roux-en-Y gastric bypass, biliopancreatic diversion, and this SGII, which is an operation that is only performed in Brazil by uh, this surgeon that we collaborate with, which consists of a sleeve gastrectomy and anilio interposition. So what these surgeons amazingly do, they cut out about one meter of terminal ileum and they transpose it upstream uh, into the, uh, the proximal ileum. And how they do this with all the vessels and the uh, mesenteric stuff, I'm not sure. And, and what is even more amazing, because we've sort of been um, looking uh, you know, over their shoulders, is that they do this laparoscopically. So it's almost like Edward Sisser hands. <laughs> but these are the results uh, of a number of studies that we had access to. Uh, this is the BPD, a collection of uh, studies that we uh, collaborated, and this is the, uh, the gastric bypass which is done at our institution. These are the ages. These are the initial BMIs. Now, the, um, this operation uh, is being done in Brazil in people with a BMI less than 35, less than 30, all the way down to 25, because they want to prove that this is a metabolic surgery. Now, this would not currently be possible in Italy. It would probably put you in jail here. But it's, it's approved by the Ethics Committee in Brazil as, as, as an experimental investigational procedure. We don't question that. We simply take the data. So these are the initial body weights. And these are the final body weights with the typical uh, large uh, loss of body weight in the uh, gastric bypass and biliopancreatic diversion, and a significant body weight drop even in this operation. So even this operation is not metabolic exclusively because people lose weight. So it's also bariatric. Okay? Now, this is what we find when we put all these people together with different surgical operations, and we categorize them as lean, up to 25, overweight, obese, class 1, class 2, and class 3, morbidly obese, what we see is that, obviously, the initial BMI is progressively higher, but so is the final BMI. And so here again, the question in my mind, and maybe this was very simple-minded, is if I get round the the, the brain participation of the patient in changes in body weight by doing something to their GI tract surgically, do I find the same phenomenon of defense of attained weight, 
Or can I circumvent this because I'm not relying on the participation of the patient, the active participation, either eating more, gaining weight, or eating less, losing weight? So this was the question. And as you can anticipate, the answer is that even under these extreme circumstances, with any sort of complicated surgery going from restrictive to malabsorptive to transpositional, the phenomenon is there. And in fact, when we plot the data in the same way, this is the initial body weight, this is the final body weight, and all these data are at one year when the weight is stabilized, what we find <coughs> is that this was the correlation in the uh, weight gainers from the risk study. And you see the R value is 0.96, unbelievably tight. And it's only slightly less in, the, in all surgical patients with a major difference in slope, such that for any initial BMI, the final BMI is higher in those that gain weight spontaneously, presumably by diet, than in those that underwent surgery. Because here, the intervention was more drastic. But the phenomenon is reproduced just as well in these surgical patients as was the case of spontaneous weight changes. So we thought this was extraordinary. And this is why I showed these data to Rudy. Because to me, the fact that when people have the nutrient transit altered in three different ways, unwillingly, as it were. I mean, they obviously uh, consent to the operation. But this is completely independent of their brain's particip participation to do something with their diets. The uh, defense mechanisms for the attained body weight are there. So another way of uh, plotting the data is, is to divide uh, the entire population, which is now approximately 600 people, into lean in blue, uh, overweight in red, and obese. And you see that now the difference between the spontaneous weight changes and the surgical weight changes is attenuated because what matters is the initial degree of obesity. Again, fully consistent with this rightward shift in the threshold that I tried to describe to you. And then we also looked at whether there was some law that was governing the weight loss in these individuals. So we calculated the fat mass energy in megacalories. You can take the total body uh, fat mass, multiply that by the caloric content of each kilogram of, or, or gram of fat mass, which is approximately uh, 7.5 kilocalories per gram of fat mass. And so you can calculate how much energy an individual is worth, is, is packed with, in terms of fat mass. And we plotted that against the change in BMI that was observed with either spontaneous weight loss or surgery. And what we got is depicted here. This is the lean subjects, those that start 
uh, with a uh, normal body weight. This is the overweight population, and this is the obese population. And I think, although here I'm not 100% sure, and I need all your help, Rudy, I think this is again consistent with the asymmetric physiology description of weight maintenance and with the shift in the threshold to the right in the obese condition. Now, before I thank you, um, I've been thinking about the, any potential uh, clinical relevance of this phenomenon. First, I had to check with Rudy that this was real. And it seems to be, because the data are very simple. There is very little extrapolation. Second, going back to your question, we reasoned that the people who already are overweight, they already have a stigma which makes them prone to either gaining further weight or losing weight. And if we had another wave of follow-up, we might find that this is one and the same population that is just swinging around as time goes on. And so these people may well be the yo-yo people who, once they become obese, they may lose weight, then regain, and then lose again, and then gain again. Okay? So that may be subjects that are extracted from the same segment of the population, which has already got to the point where that threshold has changed. Yes? I don't question that. I mean, the, the groups that we identify can be very heterogeneous as to what they contain because this was purely observational. But it's not regression to the mean because they don't go from low to high or high to low. They both start high and they end up higher or lower. So it's not regression to the mean by definition. And it's quite possible that they're doing different things. We just don't know what they did. Right, but the other ones also start high and, get, and, and go higher. So that cannot be regression to the mean, describing the entire. Right, absolutely. So this was the, f the, the first clinical sort of consideration. But the other consideration, which again I submit to you, is that perhaps what, what we do when we, uh, when we apply lifestyle intervention to our patients, we advise them to, uh, to restrict their caloric intake. And as you know, when you do this the first time, you are very likely to succeed. But the secondary failure is very high. In fact, in fact, the secondary failure of weight loss is higher than the treatment of cancer. And I bet every one of you has had the same experience. It's very easy to lose weight, but it's very difficult to maintain the weight loss. Now, our response to that is to blame this on the patient. I speak for myself. I speak for myself, Jesse. Uh, I, I look at Mrs. Rossi. 
and she lost a little bit of weight and then when she comes back six months later she has regained that weight maybe with some interest and I say Mrs. Rossi I told you not to eat too many spaghetti and, and you did okay so almost spontaneously we tend to blame this on the compliance of the patient now if you interrogate the patient they will tell you that it's the doctor's fault so typically when they've regained their weight, their weight they do not change diet they change doctor and our, our patients in Italy the ones we see have gone through a string of different weight managers be these the Weight Watchers uh, nutritionists um, psychologists cardiologists endocrinologists everything including charlatans and so they blame this on the clinical inertia you didn't give me enough guidance your diet was not good enough and you didn't see me frequently enough to uh, implement the, the sort of changes that we were suggesting so the lesson that I derive from these data possibly and that I would submit to you is that to the rescue of both the patient's compliance and the physician's inertia, there may be a biology behind that, which simply prevents a person who's become obese from losing the excess weight permanently, be that by dieting or by surgery. And that is because this mechanism is hardwired in the brain, and once they've changed the, um, you know, not the, the software, there is no way back. There is no return. Exercise, yeah, we can discuss that, but it doesn't help weight loss very much at all. But, right, possibly. Uh, but Mrs. Rossi is very resistant to exercise. <coughs> She's very sensitive to spaghetti. So... <laughs> So I would submit to you that perhaps we, we should use a measure of uh, tolerance or lenience when we see our patients uh, going into cycles of weight loss and weight regain. And if this biological mechanism that Rudy has pioneered is, as it looks, so strong, so consistent with, with um, uh, correlation coefficients in excess of 0.8, then the best strategy to apply in, 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 in the clinical world would be not to achieve major weight loss, but to maintain whatever weight the people have lost. And if we could identify, if Rudy can identify the mechanisms where, whereby you can sustain the weight loss rather than induce major changes, perhaps this will be successful. But the overarching uh, lesson that I derive from this is that obesity is biologically, in part, irreversible. So once you've got there, you've changed your brain. You are a different person somewhere in the hypothalamus. And so obesity is a condition that is best prevented than cured. Thank you.
you mean in the risk study? <coughs> they were, we asked, we have questionnaires. They were essentially weight stable. Okay. That's what they said. Yeah. And you know, questionnaires are very unreliable anyway. That's what we seem to be seeing in the last slide. That's exactly the interpretation of that, that the slope was flatter in the individuals that, uh, uh, whose delta BMI was small and was uh, steeper in, in those whose uh, delta BMI was larger. So it's, it's quite consistent with that. Thank you. In your uh, 